All right, I want to invite you to go to Revelation chapter 19. All right, as I, start, as I started looking at this, I was just going to do, initially, I was going to do um, uh, just uh, verses, I was going to go ahead and go uh, do 11 all the way through the end of the chapter, uh, but then as I began to look at from 11 through verse 16, I was like, wow, I... I I got to stop there. I got to stop at verse 16 because uh, there's just so much more in verses 17 through 21 uh, that needs to that needs to be covered. Uh, so now we're entering into what we could call the final phase of human history uh, as we as we know it. Okay, human history is going to go on for eternity, but well, I'm talking about the final phase of the human history as we know it, and so. Uh, this chapter, as we discussed last week, the triumphant return of Christ culminating in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, I don't know if y'all heard the other, heard somebody at the little fellowship thing the, the other night. Remember last week how I said it kind of irritates me to hear people kind of disrespectfully talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're going to have their favorite food and all that. In that fellowship the other day, they said, boy, I hope we have this kind of food at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay. <laughs> I said, man, he must not have been here Wednesday night. Okay. But, uh, so that was in verses 1 through 10 the, about the marriage supper of the Lamb. But tonight we're going to talk about the triumphant verses 11 through 21. But we're going to stop at verse 16, and then next week we'll, we'll talk about verses 17 through 21, which is the actual battle of Armageddon and this is the final battle in fact it was Napoleon Bonaparte that said that that valley where Armageddon will take place is the perfect setting for a battle and because of the hills and because of the deepness and the and the width of it he said it's the perfect scene uh, for a battle but this final battle, as we all know, is going to be the, the final battle. All of the evil in the world will be totally destroyed. Every government that exalts itself against God and against uh, the, the nation of Israel will be totally destroyed. And so there's going to be two phases that we're going to look at. The first phase we're going to look at is going to be tonight. And that is the triumphant or conquering return of Christ. And this phase we're going to look at tonight is a picture of the conquering Messiah. And then phase two that we're going to look at next Wednesday is the actual battle of Armageddon. And that, uh, so this phase gives us the actual battle that leads to him being the actual conqueror. So let's look at verses 11 through 13. And here we're going to see the first point, And that is Christ coming as a conqueror and a consuming victor. Christ coming as a conqueror and a consuming victor. If you remember back in the early 90s when we had the first uh, Iraq war, um, Saddam Hussein was left in power. And uh, President 
Bush at the time was questioned about it. Why didn't you just go all the way in and take him out? And I remember even Schwarzkopf was asked the question. Colin Powell was asked the same question because they were all in the same press conference together. Why didn't you just go ahead and go on into Baghdad and, and take out Hussein? Why didn't you just do that? And they all said, well, that was not our goal. Our goal was to get them out of Kuwait. That was our goal. So while they won the war, they didn't consume it. Well, when Christ comes, he is not only going to conquer it, he is going to consume it. He is going to be the total victor. So let's look here at verse 11. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called, look at the, look at the descriptions here, we'll go through these descriptions at length. But he is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So he is Christ the conqueror. He's Christ the conqueror. Now, back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27, uh, if, you want to, if you want to turn there very quick, I'll go ahead and read it for you. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father and His angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So he is the ultimate conqueror. Now, let's look at these adjectives here. So the first one is that he is faithful. He is faithful. What does that mean by he is faithful? Whenever we say that someone is faithful, it means that that person can be trusted. They can be depended upon. You know, the uh, chapter in Proverbs says that a confidence in an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. You can't depend on it. But Christ is faithful. He is trustworthy. He can be relied on to judge every enemy when he comes. One commentator said that he would conquer and judge and condemn all the ungodly and evil of this world, and his word can be trusted and relied upon. And then we have a second description. We have he is faithful. Secondly, he is true. Now what is the opposite of true? False. There is no falseness in God, in Christ, the Holy Spirit, His Word. Now, people have been trying for centuries to discredit God's Word, but they have all looked like fools as they have tried to do it. His being true means that He is, that every word that He says is truth. That every word he says and everything that he said he will do, he will do. There is no ungodliness in him, no evil in him. He never fell to any temptation. The reason why he can judge and the reason why he is a just 
judge is because he never sinned. And then the third one is he is righteous. He is righteous. He, he, he is the, the perfect example of holiness. He is the perfect example of what is right. I told one of my students the other day, um, see, we can, there, there, there's a section in our grading system of where if there is a misbehavior that we can go on and we can uh, make a notation of their misbehavior and we can uh, give them demerits. And we can, you know, it, then it goes to the dean of students and then he assigns the demerits. He can either say, well, he hasn't, he hasn't had any demerits yet, so let's make this a warning. Or, well, this is his third warning. He's getting demerits this time. But I didn't realize this until the other day. There's another section where we can give a student a merit. Okay? And so what I told my students the other day, I said, I'm going to be looking in every class for one student a week to give a merit to. And that means you need to be sitting up straight in class. You can't be laying your head down. You can't be uh, doodling when you're supposed to be taking notes. And I said, I know that it can be tedious watching these videos. It's tedious for me to have to watch them with you when I don't understand a word they're saying. Okay? Uh, but you have to do it. If, you're going, if, if you want to pass this class, you got to do it. And so one kid raised his hand, and he said, what's a merit? I said, very simply, it is doing what is right. Okay, just doing it. I said, I want to catch you doing what's right and not catch you doing what's wrong. I said, I, get, I, I do not gain reward by catching you do what's doing wrong. It gives me reward to see you doing what's right. Okay, but we don't have to doubt any of that with Christ. We don't have to search for Him to do what's right because He has always done what is right. He is doing what is right, and He will always do what is right. Why? Because He's righteous. There is no unrighteousness in Him. And then lastly, He is just. Once again, what gives Him the right to be just? Because there is no evil in him. What kind of judge would it be if that judge is sitting behind the bench and he has to sentence someone for the same crime that he has done? What kind of judge would he be? He would be a hypocrite. He would not be able to judge objectively because he would look at that person and say, you know what, I was guilty of the same thing. And I got leniency or I didn't get caught. No one ever found out. So I'm going to be lenient here. You know, justice is supposed to be blind, right? That's why the lady justice has a blindfold on. 
but that a judge that is prejudiced perhaps because he is guilty of doing the same thing that that person that is standing before him has done he cannot have blindness when he judges okay so when Christ judges he is a just judge because he can give out the punishment he can give it out because he is the one that is perfect he is the perfect judge because he is a just judge and then we see in verses 12 through 13 that he is a consuming victor he is a consuming victor let's look at verses 12 and 13 where it says his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or crowns and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So what do we mean by he is a consuming victor? Well, the first thing is this. You need to look at his eyes. You can tell a lot about a person by their eyes. That's why when I, you know, it amazes me how many teenage boys don't even know how to shake a person's hand. And when I teach these boys to shake hands, I say, you always look at a man in his eye. Because if you don't, that person that, you're, that is shaking your hand is going to think you're hiding something. You know how shaking hands came, came to be, right? It was to show to the other person you don't have a weapon. That's how it came to be. Now it's just a, a greeting. You shake everybody's hand. Well, not everybody, but you know what I mean. Okay, some of y'all are really into hugging. Okay, <laughs> I'm, well, when I see my wife over there hugging away, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, people that are watching. Okay, it's all right. But you can tell a person, <laughs> you can tell a lot about a person by their eyes. Well, you look at the eyes of Christ here. It says his eyes are like fire. What does that symbolize? Now, once again, there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. So what does that symbolize? It symbolizes his penetrating power. His penetrating power. You know, Daniel talked about the eyes of Christ in Daniel 10.6, where he said, His body also is like topaz, his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So first thing we look at consuming is his eyes. Secondly, he will be wearing many crowns. Look at verse 12 once again. And on his head are many diadems, or crowns. What does that symbolize? It symbolizes his rule and his authority. Who are those that wears crowns in kingdoms? Kings. Okay, the ones that are in authority. You go to England today, you know, the coronation, the prime minister is not wearing a crown. 
Okay, now his, the second in line was wearing a crown. But Prince Charles was the one that was given the crown. Why? He's the king. He is the, uh, uh, he is the sovereign king. And when I, was in, when I was in England, just for COVID, every store you walked into, it didn't matter what, what the store was. I found across the, from the hotel that I was staying at was the, the, the British version of Dollar General. And I found it. And guess what was on the wall? A picture of the queen. You go to any restaurant on the wall, a picture of the queen. You go into any, any store, it didn't matter what it was, there was the picture of the queen. Now, when I said that to certain people, they couldn't get over that. I said, what? Picture of the queen? I mean, that's unheard of here. You know, well, first of all, we don't have a king or a king, queen. But it would be the, the equivalent of placing the president. But over there, well, I wouldn't put the, you know. <laughs> but now, you know, you go over there now, who's on the walls of every store and every building there? It's the king. The king. Why? He is the authority. He is the sovereign. Okay? Yes, sir. Yes, it is. Yeah. If you if you go to court, you refer to the crown. You you yes, that the crown is the one that makes the ultimate rule. The crown. So he'll be wearing many crowns, which symbolizes his rule and authority. And then his name is written on his clothing in verse 12. He has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. You know, Philippians 2, 9-11 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and Bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every name will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I want you to note something in verse 14. Or 13, I'm sorry. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. It's dipped in blood. Now, I did some studying into that. What did that mean by dipped in blood? Is that human blood? What is it? It's human blood. Whose blood is it? The enemy's. It's not his. Yes. It is the blood of the enemy. He has been on a slaughter. So the blood that is on his robe is the blood of the enemy. And, ha and what is he using the slaughter? He's not using a, you know, I've, I've seen these artistic pictures of, you know, portraying, you know, Christ on his white horse. And there's all these other white horses behind him. And, you know, and he's got a sword and, you know, he's like this. No, he doesn't have a sword in his hand. The sword is his mouth. It's his very word. So he'll be slaughtering. He'll be slaughtering all right. It will be a slaughter. But he's using his very word. 
And the slaughtering symbolizes the blood of his enemies. You know, the prophet Isaiah talked about it in Isaiah eleven four, where he said, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the humble of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And then also in, in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 3, says, I have trodden the wine through a, or trough alone, and from the peoples there was no one with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my clothes. But then we see that great verse in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now let's look at the second thing. And that's in verse 14, where it says, Christ coming as a fighting commander. He is fighting, he is a fighting commander. He is commanding. He is going to command an army. Now, once again, that, that art, artistic rendition of him with a sword and his army of white horses behind him, that's, that's not a very good depiction of what is going to be happening. But he is going to, be, he is going to have an army behind him, but that army is not going to be doing the conquering. That's already been done. Christ has already gone in and waged war and slaughtered the enemy. The army coming behind him is just basically to set up new camp. So let's look at verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now who are the members of the, uh, of the army? Question here, who are, the, who are the members of the army? Who is he leading here? All of the believers. All of the believers of the Old Testament. All of the believers of the New Testament. All of the believers that have ever lived will be in his army. So when you became a believer, guess what you enlisted in? His army. Now, I want you to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And let's look at verses uh, 7, and 7, 8, and 9. Okay, it says, and, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flame and fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ 
these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now let's go to one more verse, and that's in Jude. Or two more verses. It's the book just before Revelation is Jude. Now don't go looking for Jude chapter 2 and Jude chapter 3 and Jude chapter three, 4 and so on because they're not there. There's only one chapter. But there is a ton of, of truth in this one book. Verses 14 and 15. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Defeat is coming. Everyone that has ever blasphemed the name of God, that have turned away from God, that, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, that they once tasted the heavenly gift, they had been exposed to the gospel, but they turned away from the gospel. As we'll talk a, a, just a, a little bit this upcoming Sunday, where Christ said, those that blaspheme my name, they can be forgiven, but when you blaspheme the name of the Holy Spirit, you can never be forgiven. The, that is the unpardonable sin. When you blaspheme and turn away from the Holy Spirit, that is who will be judged. And then we see in verse 15, so let's go back. Verse 15. Here we see number three, and that is Christ coming as a fierce conqueror. As a fierce conqueror. So here we're going to use our, our Bibles once again for a little bit. Verse 15, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So how does he conquer? Well, once again, there is a sword. Not a physical sword. It's word. The sword of his word. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 talks about this, this sword of his word. Where it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then there's the rod of iron. In Psalm chapter 2 verse 9 talks about his rod of iron. What does a rod do? A rod corrects. It sets things that need to be corrected. It corrects them. And it's made of iron, which means of strength. And he will execute. And then he is displaying the wrath of God. And then we see the last thing. That's in verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is coming back as the sovereign king. Coming back as the sovereign Lord. That's written on his robe and on his thigh. 
the sovereign King of kings and the sovereign Lord of lords. Go back with me, if you would, to chapter 17. This will be our last verse tonight. Verse 14. This is right after the, the, uh, the doom of Babylon. It says, These will wage war against the Lamb, being Christ, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords, King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. Next week, we'll look in depth at what is famously known as the Battle of Armageddon. All right, any questions, comments tonight? We've got a few minutes. Any? Oh, you're trying to get into the rapture question again with me, right. <laughs> Whenever he wanted. <laughs> when he decided to. <laughs> All right. Any other needling tonight? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you that you are sovereign. We thank you, Christ, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you for the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And now, Father, we pray that you would dismiss us with thy blessing. As we go into the rest of this week, may you, Father, keep us safe, protect us, Protect us physically, but more so protect us spiritually. And Father, may, we, may our lives be totally devoted to you, and may we live out the gospel. And may we be victorious. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you got a text from me, you know who you are. We're going to meet in our...